This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here, my guest this week in the studio. This gentleman is a Bloomington institution. He's been on the scene for going on 50 years. This is Mark Haggerty. He is a gentleman who has done so many things in his life, and I hope I don't embarrass you, Mark, by going over a bit of what you've done. You're a former United States Marine. You served in Vietnam. Uh, you got injured. You were awarded the Purple Heart. You had a long hospital stay in 1968. Yeah, that's true. And you came to Indiana University in 1969. Uh, today, these days, you're an electrician. You have been a trapeze artist. Are you still? Oh, yeah. Over the summer, I was coaching and um, building circus equipment out in uh, Salida, Colorado. You have worked for the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus as a catcher, which I think everybody can understand if we're talking about trapeze. Yeah, yeah. You're the guy who saves people from from falling. From falling. Yeah. You're a musician. You love music. I've been. Uh, I was drafted out of a rock and roll band in 1967. We were a successful cover band. We were wow. playing like Beatles and Stones and Kinks and stuff like that. And then the draft got me. You're a longtime political and social activist. In fact, you even ran for United States Congress under the Green Party banner. What year was that? Do you recall? That was 2000, but I, I ran before in like 1978, I think it was, um, uh, as a Democrat here in this district. You're an advocate for the incarcerated, prisoners' rights advocate. Oh, yeah, for many years uh, we, we had a group called Citizens for Jail Improvement. Yeah. Uh, that was something that started in the 70s, and I was part of that original group because I was incarcerated back then for uh, protest things against the Vietnam War. So you know a little bit about what it's like on that side of the bar. Yeah, I know what it's like to be to have to go through the court system. In fact, you even have memories of the old jail that was right next door to our radio station here, uh, the jail that was uh, pretty much a fire trap. Well, it was an old old jail. It was made for 40 people and had, like the new jail, it was completely overcrowded, had like 100 and some in it. And I was in for most of a month for uh, for voting. Back at a, There was a voting protest we had when the voting laws started going bad, which led to the present fiasco. Yes. The problems that we're having now with our elections uh, and some of the deeper problems we haven't even discussed yet are directly related uh, to uh, voting laws being changed by both the major parties and their mutual interest, but against all independents. Now, you like to describe yourself as a journalist. Yeah, I'm, I feel more that I'm trying to spread the truth of the things that happen, and I try to go where it's happening. As a matter of fact... Uh a little while ago, uh, you were involved in a case that went as far as the Indiana Court of Appeals. Uh, you were working as a freelance journalist. You were hoping to cover a closed session of the Board of Inquiry looking into the police shooting of Indiana University football player Denver Smith. Yes, that was back in the middle 80s. Right, and uh, the uh, session was closed to the public. 
They were letting in media members. You had a media credential from, what was the publication? It was Bloomington Monthly News Magazine, as I recall. Yeah. And uh, I had information that had been given to me by city employees that Denver Smith had been hit by a city truck Mm -hmm. before he went up there and was killed by the police. None of that was covered in the newspaper, and I wanted to ask their board of inquiry to talk about that and look into it. Mm-hmm. There are a number of other things, irregularities that happened. Uh, he was a, a black man that was killed while surrounded by six white police officers. This is nothing new, the shooting of uh, young black men. Well, he was up for the NFL out of IU. He was yeah. going to be drafted, and he had a new baby daughter. And uh, it was a lot of tragedy in the case, and um, and there was a lot of leaping to conclusion by the uh, by our local newspaper, yeah, and uh, and things that they didn't want to substantiate. That case was dismissed by the court of appeals. Essentially, they ruled you weren't going to go in to that closed session. Yeah, and uh, my reading of the case is that because you weren't paid a lot of money, you weren't as worthy as the other journalists. Yeah, they decided any journalist that wasn't getting paid wasn't a journalist. Right. And me, I was just trying to get to the bottom of the story, mm-hmm. which the reporters at the HT and these other places just didn't have time to do. As such, Bloom Magazine has described you as the elder statesman of Bloomington's counterculture. You come from a family of politics. Your father was the Marion County Democratic Party chair. You yourself were a precinct chair for the Monroe County Democratic Party, a big election you participated in. Yeah, the, the when we changed from a Republican town to a Democrat town. Yeah, that was 1971. Yeah. Well, Charlotte Zietlow um, was what they called my vice committee woman at the right. time. It meant we were partners in trying to uh, register people to vote. But at that time, the 18-year-old voltage had just happened. Yeah, months before. Yeah, uh, And so... We were registering people that had never voted before, and and I think that our work uh, narrowly helped uh, Frank McCloskey get her uh, elected, mm-hmm. and um, which was a big change for Bloomington because uh, he was an anti-war candidate, and that would be I don't know how to describe it now, but we don't have anything to compare with that in that cultural change in Bloomington yeah. because Bloomington was a pro-war town. You've been at this stuff for a half century. You're still at it. You just turned a big round number. Oh, yeah, I'm, I was 70 a, a week ago or so. You're as slim and as trim as a, as a 40-year-old, for God's sakes. Well, I'm playing basketball with the high school kids, so they try to, they bang me up so bad that I, <laughs> I keep recovering. You are a big one for prisoners' rights. Well, yeah, having been incarcerated numerous times for protest activities, I I came to realize what the criminal justice system was and what it did to people. And What does it do to people? Well, it selects for the poverty-stricken and forces them to pay for their own re, uh, supposed re- rehabilitation uh-huh. and their families. It impoverishes the families. And most of the people in jail here are just are poor people, and they don't belong in jail. They, If they could make bail, they would. Or. I found a, a quote from the uh, jail commander, Sam Crow. About 90% 
of the current inmates in the Monroe County Correctional Center have an addiction issue with either alcohol or other substances. A lot of people don't pay much attention to the criminal justice system, and it's a huge industry. So why should we? What? Hey, they committed a crime. They should pay their debt to society. Isn't that the way to look at it? Well, um, yeah, that's kind of a way to look at it. But a lot of people in there are just awaiting trial, so they're presumed innocent. Uh, some people are in there just awaiting prison. Yeah. yeah. Some are kids that, um, that got drunk over the weekend. And you know, there's a lot of people in for many different reasons. Uh, and then most of the people in there do have a, a addiction problems. It's not a properly used place, and the actual architecture of that structure is not conducive to rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of things about it, lack of fresh air and sunshine being right. one of the major ones. Do the inmates ever get to go outside? Not really outside. There's a, there's a yard up there that has a hole open to the roof about you know, 30 feet above them, 20 feet above them. Up so there. sort of like a skylight. Yeah, it's kind of like a skylight, only it's open, and, it, you know, it rains in there. So it, that's what they call outside, but, um, but very, very limited. I mean, they, they're, it's a very, very overcrowded place. Um, it's much more overcrowded than is reported. I understand the uh, jail's capacity is two, 294, and uh, it's generally... The population is well over 300. This is this is no secret. This has been ad- admitted by Crow and by Sheriff Brad Swain. There were 338 last week. There were 338 last week. Yeah, or, or the week before. Are there more prisoners in each cell than there should be? A lot of people are sleeping on the floor, and uh-huh. it's more and more and more overcrowded. And the more people you press in there together, and they're young males too, so you have... The problem of um, they're sick. They maybe they were drunk, maybe they were addicted, but now they're depressed and going through uh, withdrawal. Yeah. And uh, the only people around them are people who may not have the best therapeutic intentions towards them. Yeah. We've lost our community's recovery program. What was the intention of our community to help uh, resolve that? That thing, they, uh, the jail commander and the sheriff decided to uh, go the professional route and have the court system and the centerstone, who have done such a good job so far, yeah. handle everything because they got a bunch of money for it. Apparently, you were one of the uh, founders of New Leaf, New Life, which was an organization that ran uh, a program, Addicts in Recovery. Yes, that's true. And you. You folks were doing that up until about the spring of 2017. Yeah. What was that program all about? What happened? Well, the original thing was there was a guy named James Borden, uh-huh. and he was brought up to the Bloomington Jail from Bedford right after his father had died, just a few hours after his father had died, and he apparently was a little delirious, perhaps on the pills that the VA had given him. He was mm. a 47-year-old Navy veteran. And he was transported to the Bloomington Jail, and um, he was tasered to death in uh, the intake portion of the jail. And it, it was got on videotape, and, uh, and he, for not following orders, he wasn't, didn't do anything violent. Uh, of course, they said that at first, but the videotape showed that he was just completely victimized. 
by the police. So I started investigating that as a journalist, as I saw the name way in the back page of a Saturday's paper. Uh, the HT said a man dies in police custody, and I thought, well, it must be Kentucky because it was in the region. It was in the region section of the paper right. back then. I thought it must be Kentucky, but it says Monroe County. And I said, well, it died in police custody in Monroe County Jail, and it said his name was Borden. So I found a Borden phone book and a third Borden in Bedford. Yeah, I hit was his mom, and they said, oh, they killed Jimmy. They killed Jimmy. I said, oh my God, what? What happened? He said, oh, yeah, I talked to his brother, Steve. He knows the cop that went up there with him. So I researched the story very clearly, and what it ended up was uh, Steve Sharp, who was sheriff at the time, gave us a recovery program in the jail, partly because he needed a recovery program in the jail. Uh, and we had a successful model that came in from Virginia that we took over in a couple of years, but partly because he wanted a civilian presence inside that place and he gave us an office inside the jail. It was a place where people that were incarcerated could report to somebody that was actually a civilian and not part of the military structure of that, yeah. of that, uh, the, of the jail. This is big talk.
my guest this week, Mark Haggerty. So what kind of services would you provide? And it was all on a voluntary basis, not only voluntary on your part, but voluntary on the inmates' part, uh, too. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, to be in our program, you had to volunteer for the program, and yeah. then you had to be okayed by the jail and okayed by the other inmates that were in the program down there. It was a, a program that uh, gave a lot of self-autonomy to the people who were addicts in recovery. Mm -hmm. And we constantly monitored them to what they thought was working best and slowly evolved a program that involved uh, a lot of people from the community that would come in there um, and have many, many hours of, of, um, of counseling a week or whatever you want to call it because uh, I would come in with Travis Punterelli and we would, we would sing music with the prisoners in there. Uh, and that's therapeutic. Yes, it was therapeutic. It was generally a therapeutic program uh, that people had some sanctuary that would be uh, want to be in recovery or in withdrawal perhaps and needed to be in some kind of therapeutic environment where people had some intention of kindness yeah. that came from the outside of this community but also from the inmates themselves uh, over a period of about 13 years, continued to evolve and get better and better and better. Yeah, among the things that uh, New Leaf, New Life did, uh, there were classes in problem solving, addiction recovery, navigating social services, because they're going to be outside of jail at some point yes. in time. Yes. As I say, transition programs, GED preparation even, creative writing workshops. Yes, that went on for, for years. It was a sad day for you folks uh, when you were replaced. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a terrible shock to our, to the inmates and to all the volunteers and to the staff also. A lot of people that were volunteers for our program had skin in the game. Yeah. And then things at the jail are becoming worse and, and worse in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. We've had our first three suicides ever in this jail under the, this administration's watch. Yeah. We've had three suicides now and one death of a 19-year-old black kid by a heart attack after not receiving his uh, heart medication. Medication. You have met these people. You remember them as human beings. Yes. They are human beings. To me, um, two of the four I, I knew personally, actually three out of the four, the last guy this summer, um, was a fellow I knew too. He was a person who played guitar around town. The, our program, uh, the recovery program, was a very friendly place, and that's why it was such a sanctuary. And and the previous administration used to put people that were underage down there uh, because it was such a protective environment, and mm. people that were having um, that needed psychological support and a safer place to be. Bill Wilson, would, uh, our previous jailer, would send them down there to our program because it's a therapeutic program, and the people down there are basically good people and trying to, um, trying to find a way out of the mess. You know, the general public has this stereotypical view of what jail is. You're uh, victimized and terrorized constantly by fellow inmates, and that there's a sense of... Uh, inmate justice. How off or how true is that stereotypical view? 
Well, I can't say much about prison because I, I haven't been to prison. Right. State, a state uh, facility, yeah. But here in our, our jail, uh, certain things uh, do happen where, I mean, the inmates are in control inside the block. There's not near as many jailers as there are right. people incarcerated. They have that. I've seen instances of bullying and things like that that, that happen. That's a common thing to happen in, in the jail. What's uncommon is this bridge between the community and the inmates that was forged during that recovery program mm -hmm. that made it so that we had so many people that wanted to volunteer to be, to be down there. But I would say overall, the whole criminal justice system is a broken system in yeah. a way. And it's been broken by the two major parties in yeah. collusion with each other, not just the Republicans. The Democrats too, Bill Clinton and those people, stand guilty of these horrible sentences that are imposed on ad addicts that are mm -hmm. acting out of their addictions, yeah. um, selling drugs to their friends and to a cop. And, and there was the three strikes you're out deal. That, yeah, they uh, got life in prison yeah. for that. And just fill in the, fill in the, the, just fill in our jails and everything with people that should be going to classes, going to work, uh, getting exercise every day. And if they do that, if they go to classes and go to work and get exercise every day, they're tired and maybe watch some TV and go to bed, mm -hmm. then they start entering a normal restorative life cycle that's reformative for them. Yeah. And uh, when we don't do that and we lock them all up in a huge group where the people don't even have room to, 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 to sleep and don't have classes to go to, and they say, well, we have classes. They have one, one classroom for one classroom for all more than, more than 300 yes yeah. and then it's only in in use during certain hours of the day so you know it's 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 a joke and nobody really wants to know about it and if you if you do want to know about it they give you like a pr run through by the yeah. jail and sam crow and the, and the sheriff and everybody shakes their hands and the judge, judges are all, everybody wrings their hands because it's in terrible shape. But there's no leadership there, and there's no vision of how to change this kind of facility into a facility that would actually be a reformity. There's not even any discussion about that. Our guest this week is Mark Haggerty, who is a, who's an eloquent spokesperson for the issues uh, surrounding incarceration and prisoners' rights. And I wonder, Mark... Uh, the picture you paint is rather depressing. Does it depress you? Yeah, in fact, it keeps me up at night. Um, huh. I've got friends that are in there, and a lot of the people in jail are return people in there trying to navigate their way through the system again after they've flunked some kind of piss test in probation or something like that, mm -hmm. and they get reincarcerated because they had marijuana in their system and their original crime had nothing to do with marijuana. right. Um, and they have all these, the, the jail is, has a lot of probation violations in it. Maybe the major portion of people in the jail are probation violations, for mm -hmm. God's sake. You have a long family tradition of being participants in the Democratic Party. You yourself, you were a party functionary, as it were, at one time. When did you become disillusioned with the Democratic Party? Uh, the late 70s, when I saw the big corporate thrust to take over uh, the party and then the election laws, change the election laws to keep these third parties and independent uh, candidates from running. When I saw that happening, I said, oh, my God, I can't be part of this. It's just they've tampered with the election law to such a degree 
that has made fair elections impossible and fair debate about issues impossible. You only have Republicans debating Democrats or you have Democrats debating Democrats mm-hmm. and that's all you have in all of these things that run up to the elections and new ideas are excluded. So the idea of having a criminal justice campus where there's classrooms and work and physical activities never gets mentioned amongst these people, Republicans or Democrats. New ideas can't even be heard because, or why should we have motorboats in our drinking water? Yeah. The things like that. We can't even discuss those things because you can't have a third-party candidate that's viable because of these election laws that were colluded on by both parties. So when I saw that happen, I, I had to abandon ship. Interestingly enough, the things that Mark Haggerty says would be deemed controversial. He could even be deemed a troublemaker by certain people, but he's just telling it as he sees it. I don't know what to say. I mean, that's that's what I found out, and that's the world that I live in. I live in a lot of different places. I travel a lot. I've been on tour with the circus a lot, and I've worked in other countries, worked construction in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I've worked in uh, Cuba and Mexico, the Bahamas, Canada, and all these different places uh, as a working class person. And I have come to my position from having been in the working class world my whole life, never really having been in power or in authority over anyone. Is the United States the beacon on the hill that a lot of our leaders like to say we are. We are the reason that we have so many refugees that are trying to get in our southern border. It's our foreign policy that has made refugees out of these people and caused these gangs to arise in these other countries. It's the United States foreign policy that caused the rise of the the clergy in Iran and the takeover of Iran by the clergy and and cause it to be our big enemy. enemy our, all the way back to 1954. Yeah, all the way back to then. Anybody who studies history can see that the reason these people are fleeing their native countries is because of the United States foreign policy. And then we, didn't, we, we separate them from the children at the border as a torture mm-hmm. and as a, a way to try to keep them from coming in. Uh, yeah, the whole thing stinks. And the thing is, these other countries know it. And their new systems are not echoes of our new system. They're people that that have different uh, news than we do. And Canada has different news than we do. If you read Canadian news every day, you'd think it was a different world. Now, you can agree with him, or you don't have to. But never let it be said that Mark Haggerty will bore you. (laughs) Mark (laughs) Mark Haggerty has been our guest here on Big Talk. Mark, I thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. I'm, I'm surprised to be here. Why is that? Well, it, the media in this town has ignored our realities for so long that it's such a, a breath of fresh air, and I'm really glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. <laughs> thanks so much for giving us your views. Mark Haggerty, thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael.